I'm Keenan Heidi, Donation Consultant with Donor Alliance. And I'm Claire Talon, Donation Consultant with Donor Alliance. And you're listening to Transforming Lives, the Donor Alliance podcast. Welcome to Transforming Lives, the Donor Alliance podcast. I'm your host, Keenan Heidi, along with Claire Talon. Uh, today, we're going to get to know Donor Alliance, a little bit about the organization. And to help us with this is our very special guest, Jennifer Prinz, President and CEO of Donor Alliance. Jennifer, welcome. Hi, Keenan and Claire. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you today. We're excited to have you. Thank you for taking the time to chat with us about Donor Alliance. Um, before we get started, you know, we're starting this podcast off and just wanted to welcome you to the podcast. But do you have a personal connection that you wanted to share about um, your connection to donation and why it's so important to you? Well, it's fantastic. Did you say the podcast is going to be all day long? I wasn't yes. sure, but I can <laughs> share with you my personal connection. Um, actually starts back in, in 1994. I've had the honor and privilege of doing this work with our donor families and recipients and those who wait um, since 94. It was interesting, though, in, 2020, in 2016 for my family, um, we became both an organ donor family, a tissue donor family, and a recipient family in that same year. And after having the, the privilege of doing this work for quite some time, it brought home both sides, or all sides, I suppose, of what we do. So uh, we had uh, excellent care for our, our family member who was an organ, eye, and tissue donor, as well as my family member who received a life-saving liver transplant that year uh, because of a very rare cancer. So the work that we do has always been close to my heart, and now I would tell you that um, it is my heart. Thank you for sharing that. That must have been a lot of different emotions to go through in one year from sadness to hope to just really putting into perspective how um, fleeting life can be. Absolutely right. In the work that we do and, and some of the listeners that are listening today do, we know how short life is and how precious life is. And I would say that I had an extra up close and personal uh, moment with that. My family was really honored and uh, found a lot of relief and um, satisfaction and hope in uh, my family member being able to be an organ and tissue donor, and they still do. And then, of course, we live every day like it's a brand new day on the recipient side. Definitely. Thank you for sharing that. Who is Donor Alliance? I love this question, Keenan. Who is Donor Alliance? When I, when I think about our organization, we are an organization that is built from outstanding work from our workforce and our volunteer group and all of our partners in the process. And we build this mission-driven culture focused on relationships. Now, who we are formally is we're one of 57 organ procurement organizations uh, designated by CMS, or Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. We have the opportunity to serve the entire state of Colorado, and all but the three southwestern counties of Wyoming are served by our organization. We have staff in each key location throughout the state, and we provide organ and tissue donation services education with our community members as well as our key hospital partners to ensure that we have the opportunity to honor our organ and tissue donors and their families while we serve those who need us most who are waiting on these life savings organs and tissue transplants and and those who continue to wait and you know i'm a an old timer here and i've seen a lot of changes and a lot of growth in this organization 
could you provide a little bit of historical context uh, for Donor Alliance? How long has Donor Alliance been around? And you know, were there different iterations of Donor Alliance at one point? Absolutely. And, and I think um, you know this, but I'm not sure our listeners do. So Donor Alliance was actually formed in 1997 as a result of a merger between two organizations. One organization was called Colorado Organ Recovery Services, or CORS, C-O-R-S, and then Mile High Tissue Bank, or MHTB. And these two organizations came together in 97 to form what you know as Donor Alliance today. Interestingly enough, Mile High Tissue Bank was formed back in 1980 uh, by actually by a grant that was provided by the Junior League of Denver to get them started to be able to recover and, and process tissues for transplantation. CORS was actually received their federal designation from the Healthcare Financing Administration, or HICFA, back then in 1985. Also kind of important to the timeline, I think, is in, 80, in 1986, the United Network for Organ Sharing was awarded the initial federal contract to, to operate the OPTN, or the Organ Procurement Transplant Network. So this all comes together uh, for Donor Alliance, again, 1997, where we were formed with the merger of CORS and Mile High Tissue Bank. Wow, that's uh, something else. I do want to tell you that... Um, one of the nurses that I work with at one of my hospitals used to be a coordinator here back when we were course. And so it's really interesting to see that come full circle and that she understands the history. So it's just an interesting connection in our community. And thank you for sharing that. It's been really amazing. I mean, we have roots with the Junior League. We have roots with the donation and transplant hospitals in the community, all to be this great organization that we are today uh, with our amazing mission-driven staff and and culture. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Yeah, and you touched on our mission. What is our mission and the vision that we have, you know, currently as we do this life-saving work in the community? You know, I'm proud, and I know that I hear this from our from our staff, our volunteers, our community members, that they're proud of our mission. And Donor Alliance is here to save lives, save and enhance lives through organ and tissue donation and transplantation. Our vision is big, and it's bold, and it's to maximize all donation opportunities. And, of course, we, we carry out the mission and vision of the organization um, by leaning on our core values. And the core values of our organization has been the the basis for for what we do and for what our our staff do every single day. And I'm wondering if we could elaborate a little more on some of what we do to make Donor Alliance uh, a leader in the industry. So are there things that you're doing as the president and CEO that your leadership team's doing and that kind of works down through staff that maybe sets Donor Alliance apart from other OPOs? Donor Alliance has had amazing success over the years, built in the foundation, again, of our people, of of our core values of integrity, leadership, accountability, excellence, and grounded in people first. Many people may not know that we've also been on the Baldridge Performance Excellence Journey for for many years, and we were recognized um, at the at the the U.S. level at the highest level for performance excellence, and received the Malcolm Baldridge Quality Award in uh, 2018. And I would say that's been a nice mile marker on our way to continuing to use that performance excellence criteria to make sure that we can carry out the mission of the organization to serve our donor and donor families uh, to make sure that we get 
everything that needs to be out there in terms of education in our hospitals, uh, in our community members, increasing the donor registry to be able to serve those who need these life-saving and life-enhancing organ and tissue transplants. Great. Thank you. So it sounds like you do a lot of great work out in the community, and I'm imagining that we need those community members that you spoke about to really help us in that work. Who are Donor Alliance's key partners? Well, Claire, that's a great question, and I really appreciate you asking. When you when you try to picture our donation service area in Colorado and, and nearly all of Wyoming, that is a 280,000-plus square miles in land mass. It's about 6.2 million in population. So it's a large area, and this work only happens with strong partnerships with all of our key stakeholders in the two-state area. I want to say thank you. Uh, Hopefully we have some listening uh, members from our donor hospitals. We serve 117 donor hospitals. None of this work is possible without strong collaboration and relationships with each one of those donor hospitals. We do have four local transplant centers as well, and so we have strong relationships with them and make sure that these organs and tissues can be utilized for the people who are waiting. We work with coroners throughout the two-state area, our funeral homes, and our Department of Motor Vehicles in Colorado and the driver services in Wyoming. And these are, again, key partners in our registry registry work as as well as what we're doing out in the donor hospitals. There are currently 1,500 people waiting for a life-saving transplant in our region, which is really a a large number, and, and clearly we need to be focused to make sure we can meet the needs of those who wait. You might be surprised to hear that there's also 109,000 people waiting uh, in the country. And so our work is not done to continue to honor our donor and donor families uh, to meet the needs of those who need us the most. Claire and I spend a lot of time in the hospitals and, you know, we we kind of have that intersection and, and spend so much of what we do helping support our hospitals. But I'm curious, what would you tell our hospital partners um, what do we need from them to fulfill our mission? And then conversely, what um, do you think they need from us? Yeah, I'm, I, for our hospital partners who are listening, I am I'm hopeful that we can continue to work together on a granular level, right, at the referral uh, level, that our hospital partners will identify potential organ and tissue donors and make those referrals appropriately, and that they'll work with us through the donation process, in particular on the organ donation side. I know it's a lot of you know, sometimes extra procedures are different work than what our hospital partners do on a day-to-day basis, and yet it's continuing to save lives in that important work that they do. So hopeful that we can work together in that way. And then, you know, on a macro level, I think the, the first-person authorization and honoring first-person authorization is something that we need to continue to collaborate, build relationships, and educate one another about that process. It's, it's somewhat um, less stressful, right, when we have a first-person authorization and we have all of the key players from a, a donor family who are on board with that and understanding and supporting donation. But it's when we have a first-person authorization and there may be a potential dissenting member of the family or more family members who don't understand the donation process. And that's when the relationships that we have with hospitals, our joint education and communication is, is so important so that we can help the family through that process. Because I, I believe we all, of course, want to honor the wishes of the, of the decedent. And, and we do that best when we work closely together at all levels, from a, from a senior leader, my level, an executive level with the hospitals, um, all the way through with the folks that uh, know each other very well at the bedside. And that, that's important. 
You also asked me about what do I think the hospitals need from us. And the beauty of that question is, is that I don't have to wonder what they need from us, right? We survey. So we ask referring physicians and referring partners out in the donor hospitals, what are your key requirements or what do you need from us to be able to have a successful relationship uh, as your organ procurement organization or OPO? So each time we go through that survey, and again, I'm hoping some of our listeners have participated, we appreciate that feedback. We actually use what uh, we learn from those surveys, and we incorporate that into the action plans and development plans of our organization. We operationalize that in conjunction with our donor hospital partners, and then we survey again to make sure that we're meeting and exceeding those expectations. So I know it's important for our referring physicians that we have clear communication and visibility in the hospitals, that we're timely there when donor families need us the most. And we know that those things are important, again, because we've been told on surveys. We know that referring physicians and bedside care providers want to know the outcomes of donation and transplantation. They want to know the success and how those recipients are doing. And that's why we send back communication and we hold post-donor conferences and things like that to continue to share that information and work on improving the process. So it's been, obviously, we have great relationships with our donor hospitals as we have transition in our organization or out in the hospitals. I just think it's important to remember the basics, right, to, to have good relationships, to collaborate, and to make sure that we're all working together to honor the wishes of our donors and donor families, again, so the people in need of these organ and tissue transplants can receive them. That's really great. In the first part of that, you talked about um, first-person authorization. Just in case we have anyone that's listening that's new to organ donation and, and working with us, can you elaborate a little bit on what that means and how someone might um, signify that they'd want to be an organ donor? Absolutely. And some of our some of our listeners may know this, but everybody, uh, it may not be common knowledge for everyone. So there's there's something called, you'll hear the UAGA or the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act. And that was uh, legislative language that was originally passed in the United States, if you can believe it, back in 1968. And then it was revised again in 1987 and 2006. And since most of our listeners are going to be coming from Colorado and Wyoming, I do want you to know that both states have adopted that 2006 language. And the UAGA sets that legal framework for donation of organs, tissues, and eyes. Uh, It's similar language in each state across the U.S. The great thing about this language is it establishes the rights of an individual uh, to make their anatomical donation. So when I talk about first-person authorization, we're talking about the decedent, who our hospital partners are taking care of, and they've designated that they want to be an organ, eye, or tissue donor. Um, It creates an opt-in system, and so we all have to opt-in or sign up to be a heroic organized tissue donor, and we have a couple of ways that you can do that in Colorado and Wyoming. You can do that online, which I would say takes the, the least amount of time, and you can do it from the comfort of wherever you are. But if you go to donatelifecolorado.org or donatelifewyoming.org, you can sign up on the donor registry that way to save a life. Also, when we go in to get our driver's license or state IDs in Colorado and Wyoming, it works the same way you would be asked of whether you want to sign up to be an organ eye and tissue donor. 
And if you're not sure if you've done that or not, you could pull out your license even right now while you're listening and look for a heart on your driver's license. If there is a heart there, then thank you very much. You've signed up to be an organ eye and tissue donor. Uh, if there's not a heart there, I'm hoping that you'll go to Donate Life Colorado or DonateLifeWyoming.org and learn some more information about organ eye and tissue donation so that you can make your decision about signing up on the donor registry. And just to clarify, um, you had mentioned that uh, the person on the registry, I, I guess it's get, it got me thinking, How? what percentage of the population are on the registry in Colorado and Wyoming? Yeah, you know, across the U.S., there's about 50% of the people who go in to get a driver's license or a state ID or of, or are of driving age across the U.S. It's about 50% of the people who sign up. Colorado and Wyoming, they lead the country in this area. Nearly 68% of all Coloradoans who go in to get a driver's license or a state ID say yes, they want to be a heroic organ eye and tissue donor at the time of their death. And in Wyoming, it's 64%. So in the latest data set that I have from the national organization who puts all this information out, it's called Donate Life America. Colorado is number one in the country, and Wyoming is number four. So if you're a community member or a hospital partner or someone who just cares about organized tissue donation, you've got that heart on your license or you've signed up on the donor registry online, thank you very much. You're leading the way in the country. With such high donor designation rates in our service area, what does that look like when we are in our hospitals doing our important work? You know, the majority of our organ donors and tissue donors um, are people who have already made that decision themselves, and they have first-person authorization to be an organ eye and tissue donor. It's not all. So when there is a first-person authorization in place, our Family Services Department works with the donor family to make sure they understand the donation process, that they all of their questions are answered, and then any follow-up about where those organs or tissues have, have been transplanted and the difference that their loved ones made in someone else's life. If we're working with a, a donor family and the donor is not on the donor registry, our Family Services Department does the same work. They talk to that family about the options for organ eye and tissue donation, answer their questions about the donation process, and proceed forward with the family's authorization. And then again, provide that follow-up. And I'm not sure if our listeners know a lot about, we also provide aftercare program for all of our organ eye and tissue donors, uh, people that we talk to, whether the family said yes to donation uh, or if they declined donation, they are offered our aftercare services. And that's something that I'm very proud of because I know that it continues to make a difference in our donor families' lives uh, when they are connected to other people that have been through the same type of process and tragedy um, that their family's been through. Yeah, it takes a lot of different parts to make all of this happen, but I, I'm wondering what can the hospitals do? You mentioned that maybe if there's a family member that's a, a reluctant with the registry and maybe doesn't totally get on board with that. So what what would we tell the hospitals? You know, how do we handle that conversation? Do we just tell them it's the law, you're going to have to do it? Or, you know, how, how do we have that conversation with the family to um, get them to that point that they understand that legal part of the registry? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, Keenan, and I, I appreciate it. You know, in almost 30 years of having the opportunity to do this work and 
watching other conversations out in the community rarely is the best approach that it's the law and that we have to move forward. And, and I would say it's the same thing with donation and transplantation. My experience, um, even going back to when I had the opportunity to talk to donor families routinely, um, is m- most families have opposition to the registry. Most of the families who have opposition, and this may be a couple of, of times a year that we encounter this, this challenge, most of the time it's they don't understand donation and or they don't understand the death declaration process, right? They don't understand brain death. Or we've done something like talk about donation or talk about the donor registry uh, maybe at the hospital level or somewhere in their family before their loved one's been declared brain dead uh, and or they've made the decision to withdraw uh, life-saving care. And that makes it challenging because it gets confusing for people. So I think the most important thing is the things that we do every day, which is to make sure that we are providing great care to all patients. And when a patient experiences brain death process and or life-saving measures are no longer working and the, the patient is going to be extubated, at, at that time, um, to give the family time, help them understand the brain death process, and then talk about donation after that. And it's about how collaborative are we in that conversation so that um, the hospitals made the referral. We're working together with Donor Alliance staff and hospital staff to understand that process and to make sure that our timing is is good with the family in that we don't rush them uh, and that we don't talk about death and donation in the same conversation because that can be challenging. And once we help donor families understand the, do- the death process, donation, and that their loved one already made this decision, majority, if not nearly all of the time, um, things, things move forward as they should. It's when there's actual opposition from the donor family to the first person authorization. And, and sometimes I think it's uh, really sad that we even consider not honoring uh, first-person authorization because that would mean we're not honoring the wishes of the person that's in that patient bed. And I, there are so many other areas in healthcare where um, that never happens. And sometimes that conversation can come up with donation. And again, I implore our donor hospital partners to remember that we're all there to honor the wishes of of the deceased patient and how we do that best is by collaborating and having uh, good communication and protocols and process in place ahead of time. It's hard to create those things in the moment. So if we can work together ahead of time, I think that that also helps. Yeah, that's a great explanation. Thank you for that. Now, just switching gears slightly, since we're talking about working in our hospitals, I think we've all seen it um, at the population of Colorado and Wyoming have grown over the years. I can feel it even in my short time here. But as we, as our hospitals get busier, as the uh, state gets busier, how is Donor Alliance supporting our hospital partners as we have increased donors um, in their service or in their hospitals? They're busy as well. And and what are we doing to support them? Our listeners may not realize that... um, Donor Alliance is unique in that we have our own freestanding organ and tissue uh, recovery center. It's it's out in the in the Lowry area for those of uh, those of you that kind of wonder or look at the geography. So, one of the things that we've been able to do is move brain dead organ donor cases to our recovery center. We also move tissue donor cases, and what this has done is is been a relief to the hospitals and their services, their supplies, their workforce utilization 
so that we can move those donors and then use our donor alliance staff and supplies to manage the organ recovery and donation process. And that's, I hear from our hospital partners pretty routinely that they appreciate our work with our recovery center. The other thing that we do is we are growing positions in our remote areas. We're adding positions that will allow us to respond more quickly uh, to the needs of the hospital and, and the donor families by being on site more quickly. We're also creating um, hybrid positions. So we are having different roles in on, say, our, our organ work system side and looking at moving beyond having a a single person who manages the family and referral process and a single person who manages all the, the donation management process in the hospitals and splitting that up into different roles so that we're growing our workforce again so that we can be more responsive to the donor hospitals, make sure that we're serving our donor and donor families uh, as well as those who are waiting on these life-saving transplants. Yeah, excellent. And I'm going to throw a little bit of a curveball at you, not to be difficult, but can you talk a little bit about how we manage things in 2020 and 2021 with that? What was it, COVID? Um, <laughs> you know, I think I'd like to kind of brag a little bit about Donor Alliance, and I'd like you to do that for us and, and maybe explain to the listeners how we managed and really what successes we had during that time frame. You know, I wonder if anybody during this podcast has um, taken notes about how many times one of us has used the term relationships and the importance of relationships, because in the end, it is all about the relationship that we have with, with all the key stakeholders, with our donor and donor families, our community members. And nothing tested that um, for Donor Alliance like COVID did. And it was actually as one of our hospital partners, longtime member of our advisory board, a pillar in the clinical community in the critical care areas, um, called me and said, gosh, I'm worried about this COVID thing. And this was, you know, in the first quarter of 2020. And I'm worried about how are we going to make sure that donation still happens if our ICUs are full and past capacity, if we don't have staff uh, if we run into supply issues. And boy, aren't those all things that actually happened for all of our hospital partners and for our organization. And coming out of that that 10-minute phone call at the time, we decided to develop our own donor alliance surge plan um, that would dovetail and connect to and support our hospital partner surge plans. And so we worked internally with a fantastic team of people to develop the surge plan for Donor Alliance. We checked that uh, through our hospital services department with our larger donor hospitals first and then on out throughout our donation uh, community out into that 117 hospitals. And what we were all focused on, the donor hospitals and the and Donor Alliance, is to make sure that care could continue for the living patients in the hospitals while donation could also be there for our donors and our donor families and the recipients who needed the transplant so that donation and transplantation didn't stop in our service area and or out in the country. And Keenan, I agree with you. I mean, this is probably one in my, my career, the top five pr most proud moments I've had um, because Donor Alliance was able to share our search plan and the work that we did with our donor hospitals on a national level. And I think I said this earlier, but just to remind everyone, there are 57 organ procurement organizations in the country. We have confirmation that 25 of them adopted a surge plan very similar to ours. 
it's, it's amazing. And so our results, and, and we've certainly talked a lot about this, we didn't lose any organ or tissue donors to COVID, to hospitals being past maximum capacity, to the supply chain issues. We were able to work with our donor hospitals to honor the wishes of all of our donor and donor families throughout the height of COVID. And then, of course, now we're, we're living with COVID and continuing this process. So that phone call, that relationship from that critical care physician from our advisory board saved I don't know how many lives, right? I mean, it's overwhelming to think about how that impacted donation in Colorado and Wyoming, and you can only imagine how that might be magnified across the country with all the OPOs who joined in. Yeah, we were definitely very agile during that time and, and pivoting quickly as needed. It was a great um, experience for our organization. I think back to our performance excellence work, we were uh, able to be uh, agile. We made quick decisions. We kept one thing in mind, and that was that the safety of our staff was the most important. Um, that was the most important thing in terms of s securing supplies for safety for our staff, um, and then that we could continue donation and transplantation for those who, who need us the most while we were supporting our hospitals. And certainly was trying time, uh, but I, we came out of that with a record performance for donation and transplantation in 2020, 2021, and we are expecting to see those same again, another record year of performance uh, in 2022. Yeah, wow. And, you know, we're kind of talking about how we as an organization uh, were able to uh, be creative uh, in the face of this pandemic. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit, well, not me, but maybe you, uh, about some of the technological advancements we're seeing and you know what we're doing as an organization to help facilitate new technologies for better outcomes. Yeah, I'm hoping that we could get even a, a whole episode for our, for our listeners about machine perfusion and technologies and growth and innovation in the field of donation and transplantation. It's, it's a phenomenal time in, in, our, in our work. We're seeing many different um, machines coming into play that are actually allowing us to preserve organs longer and to assess them. So they're therapeutic, um, at, you know, interventions that can be made as well as diagnostic for time that we can watch these organs on the equipment to make sure that they are the best indeed transplant for those recipients who, who need us the most. So I think it's an exciting time. Um, it's a time that we need to be thoughtful and mindful of protocols and process and education so that our hospital partners understand what innovations are out there, what they might be seeing in terms of technology and innovative process out in the donor hospitals, as well as the work that we're doing in our recovery center. You know, research is important, understanding how we can maximize donation and transplantation is certainly the foundation, but these innovations are important and they're exciting and they will continue to help us honor the gift of donation. Uh, again, while recipients receive um, better organs for transplant, organs that are more effective for those particular recipients. So it's an exciting time, and I'm hopeful that we could even do another session on perfusion and technology innovation. Yeah, you definitely teed us up for uh, 
for more ideas there, <laughs> which is great. Lots of really interesting topics. Um, thank you so much for your time today. I know we are getting towards the end. So I just wanted to ask, is there any last message that you wanted to share with our hospital partners or our community members before we let you get back to the other great work you're doing within the organization? Sure, absolutely. I mean, to all of our hospital partners, I want to thank you. I know that um, when donation happens, it's not necessarily routine in your facilities and with your work. And so thank you for keeping the main thing the main thing, which is to make sure we honor the donors and the donor families with good care and that we work together to collaborate to make donation happen. I think we probably have some staff that are listening and or we might have some volunteers. And to our Advocates for Life and our Donor Alliance workforce, it's an honor to do this work with you. Thank you for your mission-driven work, for your focus on relationships, and for always honoring our donor and donor families. And then to our community members that are out there, 68% of you have already signed up on the donor registry. It's uh, phenomenal. 64% uh, of you in Wyoming. Again, extraordinary numbers. To those of you that maybe haven't made the decision yet, I hope that you will uh, decide to learn more about organized tissue donation and uh, potentially make your decision to join the donor registry. It's been an honor to work with all of you through this podcast. It's been fun, and I, I look forward to the future um, being able to listen in to the, your next uh, sessions. Jennifer, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Yes, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Transforming Lives, the Donor Alliance podcast. If you have any questions or any ideas for a show, send us an email to podcast at donoralliance.org.